just by a show of hands, uh, how many of you are excited for the Super Bowl uh, this evening? How many of you like to watch it? Okay, not very many. How many of you could care less about the Super Bowl, all right? Uh, uh, even, even more of you. Uh, so uh, you're going to have to bear with me. I, I know sometimes uh, I probably use too many sports uh, illustrations, and I apologize for that. I try to be varied, but uh, I've always enjoyed sports, and that's something that I, I read a lot about, and so I tend to have more f- um, stuff to pull from when it comes to sports. But if you, if you are familiar with football, you'll recognize this face that's going to be on the screen. Um, anybody know who this is? Absolutely. This is Matthew Stafford. Uh, he is the quarterback for the Los Angeles Rams. Uh, this evening, he'll be playing in his very first Super Bowl as the Rams take on the Bengals. Uh, even if you don't care about football, uh, here's why I think Matthew Stafford's story matters. Is Matthew Stafford gives us a picture of someone who endures and waits well, even when circumstances, circumstances aren't as he had hoped that they would be. 13 years ago, Matthew Stafford was drafted number one by the Detroit Lions. He had excelled as a quarterback for the University of Georgia. He was a bulldog. Uh, He always came up short of the highest accolades and the championships. He happened to be playing in the SEC where uh, Nick Saban was coaching and and other challenging opponents were present. A man named Tim Tebow was quarterbacking for the University of Florida. And yet, Matthew Stafford was taken number one overall in the draft the year after his junior year. He was drafted by the Detroit Lions. Do we have any Lions fans in the room? You wouldn't raise your hand if you were a Lions fan. 12 years of mediocrity, 12 years of mostly losing, Matthew Stafford quarterbacked the Lions. He saw the playoffs only three times, played in three playoff games. They lost every one of them. He experienced all kinds of adversity. Here's the number one pick, uh, these high expectations, not only from others, but from himself. And year after year after year, the Lions mostly had losing records. And yet now he plays for the Los Angeles Rams. And what stuck out to me over these last two weeks between the last playoff game and the Super Bowl is that many of his Lions teammates have come out and they've talked about what a great teammate that Matthew Stafford was, how he was a great leader, How in years of losing, how in years of defeat, how in years of of all the adversity, head coaching changes, losing his best wide receivers, how Matthew Stafford continued to do the work and do it the right way and treat people well. And I think about what an anomaly that is. How many people can say the same thing, especially in professional sports? In a day and age when after even just a couple of months or even a few years of unsustained success, People are asking for trades and they're, they're wanting to be with a different team. And yet Matthew Stafford is remembered for 12 years of just playing hard, doing the right thing in the right way. I wonder how well we would have waited had we been in Matthew Stafford's shoes. What would you have done if you were the number one quarterback? If you were one of the best players to enter the NFL and you endured year after year of losing, and yet you had these expectations. You, you wanted to play in the playoffs. You wanted to win playoff games. You wanted to go to the Super Bowl, and yet year after year, you languished in defeat. How well would you wait? And maybe the stretch to think about how you would wait if you were an NFL athlete is just too far. Let's just talk about life circumstances for you. 
How well do you wait when things that you had hoped for, when things that you have dreamt about, when you have these expectations of what should be and they don't come to pass, your experiences don't match your expectations? Maybe for you, you've had expectations of what your family might look like. You've had expectations of of when you might meet that perfect someone and potentially marry them. You have expectations of what your career after college might be like or what it might be like in your job and the promotion that you might get or or how you might excel on the team or in the band or in the choir and, and yet you're still waiting. How well do you wait? How well do you wait when you have these expectations of what should be? And I would even say sometimes God honoring expectations. You read things in his word and, and this is how we're supposed to treat each other and this is how we're supposed to live and yet your experience doesn't match your expectations. How well do we wait when our experiences don't match our expectations? And here's even a bigger question. How can we trust God in that waiting? How can you and I trust God and his goodness and who he is and what he's doing even when what we're expecting doesn't match our experience? Well, we're in the series Exploring the Heart of God. We're looking at lessons from the life of David. David is, we're told, is a man for God's own heart. And so we're looking at him and saying, okay, what does he teach us about the heart of God if he's a man for God's own heart? And there are episodes in David's life that reveal to us things about our heavenly father. One of the things we see in David's life is that God can be trusted. We can trust God with our sin. We saw that a couple weeks ago. We can trust God and, and trust in his power. We saw that last week. And this week, I wanna look at this idea of how we can trust God even in our waiting And I want you to be thinking in this moment, what are you waiting through right now? Where is it that your expectations, even God-honoring expectations, aren't matching your experience in this life? Uh, We're gonna hang out with David. Uh, The main place we'll be is 1 Samuel chapter 24 today. But before we get there, I wanna kind of bridge the gap between where we were last week and where we'll be today. Last week, if you were with us, we were in... 1 Samuel 17, uh, that famous account of David and the Philistine champion Goliath. We saw David in faith, in trust, trust in the power of God, and that's what enabled him and the Israelites to overcome the mighty champion. It is one of the highs of David's life. In fact, if you followed the trajectory of David's life following the slaying of Goliath, he becomes quite famous. Uh, He becomes a hero. In fact, songs are written about him. As you thumb through the pages following 1 Samuel 17, you'll see that people are literally writing songs about David. 1 Samuel 18, verse seven. They danced and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Like like maybe it was a rap, I don't know. Maybe it was like uh, opera, I have no idea. But they were singing, they were writing music about David. Like like his legacy was being remembered. Like that's that's pretty significant. If people are out there writing songs about me, I probably feel pretty good about myself in that moment. Um, They're not, by the way. But if they were, then I would probably feel pretty good about myself. We see these mighty soldiers among Israel surrounding David and wanting to be with him and follow him. And all this begins to wear on Saul. In fact, 1 Samuel 17 tells us that David slayed Goliath. 1 Samuel 18 tells us that Saul began to watch David closely. And in verse 12, Saul was afraid of David. 
And by the end of 1 Samuel 18, we hear that in verse 29 that David was now an enemy of Saul. And what follows in chapters 19 and the rest of 1 Samuel is a lot of David running from Saul. In fact, multiple times Saul tries to kill David. That's a long slide from being the national hero. What often happens is that David flees. He takes a break to um, help with the Philistines. Saul pursues David, and Saul takes breaks to fight the Philistines. But oftentimes we see David hiding and running. And I just can't help but think about this juxtaposition, this, this contrast. Keep in mind, at this point, David, he's been anointed by the great prophet Samuel. David knows that he's been set apart by God for something special. He may know and even likely knows that he's gonna be the next king of Israel. And yet, what's his experience? He's hiding in caves like a wanted terrorist. So as you have these expectations, God honoring expectations, God's gonna use me for something special. God loves me, he's anointed me, and yet your experience is I'm running and I'm hiding and my life is in danger. It's his cave experience is what I call it because a couple of times in 1 Samuel 19 through the end of 1 Samuel, we find David hiding in caves. The same David who slayed Goliath. The same David who's been given the wife of the king, the, the king's daughter to be his wife, not given the wife of the king, that wouldn't be good. David has these expectations and yet his experience is so different. So again, the question I have for you is, What's your cave experience? Are you in the cave right now? Are there places where you have these God-honoring expectations, where you have been waiting for something, longing for something? You, you read in his word, this is what should happen in the life of someone who follows God, and yet your experience is completely different. How well will we wait, and how do we trust God in the waiting? We're gonna be hanging out with David in the cave of En Gedi, 1 Samuel 24. It's the last cave that we see David in during this part of his life. By the way, I have a picture of En Gedi. I don't know if I have the slides out of order or not, but uh, here's a picture of the rugged wilderness of En Gedi. Just a, just a remote area. Um, in fact, there's some parts of En Gedi that are called an oasis, but it's known for being rugged. This is courtesy of BiblePlaces.com. Again, I, I show you a picture just so you can see that when we read things in Scripture, they're about real people in real places. God really worked in these times, in these seasons, and he still does. So David is in the desert of En Gedi. We'll pick up in chapter 24, verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So what does Saul do? Verse two. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. That's just a cool name. The crags of the wild goats. I'm drawn to it for a couple of reasons. One is selfish because my name Craig uh, comes from uh, the word crag. It means from the rock, from the crag. And so I could just put a little I in my Bible and put Craig's of the wild goats. Um, 
But the idea of the crags, it just sounds rugged, I think. Like for me, the crags of the wild goats could be a really cool biker lounge somewhere out west in the Rocky Mountains on a two-lane highway where bikers can stop in and eat. It's just like, like, like it has this rugged feeling to it. In fact, I think even when you say it, you feel more rugged. And so I want you to humor me and I just want you to say it out loud. The crags of the wild goats. The crags of the wild. It's just, don't you just feel more rugged? Like it's like, man. So, so, so here is Saul pursuing David. It says he took with him 3,000 able young men. Um, if you read this in the original language, it gives the hint that these are probably elite forces. I wouldn't go as far to say they're the equivalent of our special forces, but, but this is an elite group of soldiers, well-trained, um, healthy, able to go through the rugged terrain that I just showed you uh, to find David. Saul is pursuing David, uh, almost like you think of the United States forces pursuing terrorists in the mountains of Afghanistan. Again, an incredible juxtaposition of the anointed being pursued. What happens next? Verse three, the tension just begins to build. It says, he came to the sheep pens. That is Saul and his forces came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Now this is part that might be a little bit offensive to some of you. Um, Saul's going in to use the restroom. Saul's been pursuing David and suddenly nature calls and he needs to go find a place to do his duty for lack of a better phrase. And again, if you're offended by this, I'm sorry, it's, it's in the word. So, 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 so Saul goes into a cave to take a little time to himself. And what he doesn't know is that David and his forces are hiding in the far recesses of the cave. The phrase that Saul wanted to relieve himself most literally translated is he needed to cover his feet. He's gonna be there a while. And so while Saul is in the cave, nature calling, David's in the back watching all this unfold and, and listen to what his men say to him. Verse four, the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. You know, if you've ever been into a, a dark cave, if you've been on the outside in the daylight and you enter the cave, you know that there's hardly anything you can see because your eyes are adjusting. But if you've ever been in that cave for an extended period of time, your eyes have already adjusted and you can kind of see what's happening. And so Saul has no idea what's happening, but as men see this, they see this as an opportunity for David to finally exact revenge, for David to finally get what's coming to him. They're, they're encouraging David to act. Now, we don't know what they're encouraging David to do. Um, it doesn't tell us specifically, were they encouraging violence? Were they encouraging him to take Saul's life? We don't know that for certain. We do know that their challenge to him to do something in this moment results in a strong rebuke. We'll see that in just a couple of verses. But they're encouraging David to do something. So with the stealth of a seasoned survivalist, he sneaks up to where Saul is and swiftly with a sharp blade cuts off the corner of his robe and then sneaks back like a ninja into the shadows. Saul uh, is, is, is unaware of what's just unfolded. Verse five. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken 
for having cut off a corner of Saul's robe. David's suddenly overcome with guilt. Well, why is David's conscience getting the best of him? Uh, we, we do know from this time in, in history that oftentimes the king's robe was a symbol of his dignity. It was a symbol of his authority. And so to cut off a piece of it was basically to attack the dignity or the authority of royalty. It was seen often as an act of rebellion. Uh, perhaps that's why he's conscience stricken. We get a little more insight. Verse six, he, David, said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. What David expresses in verse six is really at the heart of what's happening here. Do you see how often David mentions the Lord again? The Lord forbid, like God does not want this to happen. What does he not want to happen? That he should lay a hand or hurt the master. He, he, he characterizes Saul, his master in this description, the Lord's anointed. He not just says it once, he says it twice. One of the things we see in the Old Testament is that oftentimes the leaders, the prophets, they were anointed by God. That was a sign that they were set apart for a special purpose. They were set apart to the Lord. So David sees that Saul has been anointed. Saul has been anointed as David had been anointed by Samuel. He's been set apart for God's work as king of Israel. The belief then was that if this was the anointed of God, then to harm him and to offend him was to offend God. And David said, how can I get ahead by dishonoring God to honor God. Like the two don't go together. For the Lord forbid that I should ever lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Like this is not the right thing to do. This is not God's timing. Yes, God has anointed me for something special. Yes, God may have anointed me to be king, but God gets to take care of that in his timing. My responsibility is to honor God with my actions. And to harm the Lord's anointed would not be honoring God with my actions. And so even when David's expectations don't match his experience. He says, I have to trust God and just keep doing what honors God even while I wait. And look at what happens next, verse seven. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. The word there, sharply rebuked, can also be translated tear apart. It's a term that's used sometimes of animals ripping another animal to shreds. And in essence, David's point gets across to his guys. Men, this is not what we do and this is not how we do things. And so Saul left the cave and went on his way. I'm just gonna summarize what follows in verses eight and following. Saul leaves the cave, David trails behind him. David falls on his face with great respect for Saul and calls out to him and asks for forgiveness, essentially. He holds up the corner of Saul's robe and Saul knows, oh no, he could have had me. It could have been the end. And so they have this kind of pleading back and forth. David pleads to God. David pleads for God to act justly, for God to decide who's right between Saul and between David. Uh, Saul even goes as far in a moment of what we consider sanity to say, David, you will be king one day. 
Will you look after my family? Will you refuse to harm my family? And so David commits to Saul once again to do things the right way. What we see here is this opportunity that David had to take matters into his own hands. He had an expectation. I would even say he had a God-honoring expectation. He'd been anointed by the prophet Samuel. He was going to be the next king of Israel. Who would have faulted David for going ahead and, 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 and getting rid of the one who was hurting him and harming him? And yet David knew that he had to honor God with his actions. And so even when his expectations did not match his experience, he chose to trust God even while he waited. And so again, I think the challenge for you and I is to think about times in our own life. Where is it that our expectations, God-honoring expectations, are not being matched by our experience? Will we trust God? How do we trust God in those moments? Are there relationships in your life that don't reflect what you know would honor God? You have a clear picture from his word what it would look like to treat someone well, to love someone well, to be kind to someone, to serve someone, to submit to someone, and yet you look at your relationships. Maybe it's in your home, maybe it's at your place of work, maybe it's in your community, maybe it's in your neighborhood, and you're like, listen, there are things happening that don't reflect what God's best is. What do you do when your experiences don't match your God-honoring expectations? What happens when you look to your circumstances in life? Some of you have been languishing in a job or a career for a long time. And you know, others will tell you that no one works harder, no one's smarter, no one's better at the job than you, and yet what keeps happening? You keep getting passed over again and again and again and again and again. Maybe you live this as a parent. Maybe you have a child who's extremely successful in, 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 in an art or in a sport, and, and yet you keep seeing your child. They never get the solos. They never get very many lines in the play. They never get time on the court or on the field. The expectation doesn't match the experience. Some of you have been wading through far more significant things than that. You, you face an illness, a difficulty. So some in our church have been wanting children for a long time, and yet it hasn't happened yet. How do we trust God in the waiting? Again, we look to David. I think David gives us a clear picture. What does David do here? David trusts in the sovereignty and the providence of God. When we talk about the sovereignty and providence of God, I've shared this with you before. In fact, it's about this same time, uh, almost seven years ago when I first shared this with you. Uh, sovereignty and providence are the same side, are the two sides of the same coin. God's sovereignty speaks of his absolute power, his ability to do anything and everything. And God's providence is the reality that God, because of that power, is working in every situation, even when we can't understand it, even when we can't see it. And David in these circumstances trusts in the sovereignty and the providence of God. How do we see it? Because David keeps just de desiring and, and resorting to just honoring God even when things aren't working out the way that he thought they should or envisioned them to be. I mean, just, just months and years before, people are singing his name and, and, and now he's hanging out in a cave while the king comes in to, to use the bathroom. Like, I mean, how does he continue to trust God when life isn't as he thought it should be? 
He trusts in the sovereignty and the providence of God. How do you trust in the sovereignty and the providence of God? You just keep striving to honor God, doing the right thing in the right way. Look at David's words again, verse six. The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him for he is the anointed of the Lord. David doesn't know how he's gonna become king. David doesn't know how God is going to work. But what David does know is that he can keep honoring God. He can obey his word and do the right thing. In the process, he trusts in the sovereignty and the providence of God. There are words in Proverbs chapter three, I think that speak to this. There's some of my favorite words. You, You may even have them memorized. If you don't, I'd encourage you in your Bible, whether it's an app or a physical copy like I have, to highlight them, to to mark them. But here's a simple proverb. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. I don't know what you're wading through right now. I don't know what your cave experience is. I don't know where it is that your God-honoring expectations have not been matched by your experience. Um, Maybe maybe you're a young person, you've graduated high school or college, and you just envisioned that you would be at a different place right now. Maybe you're retired and you thought retirement was going to look different. You certainly didn't think you're still going to be working. You envisioned traveling or doing something else. Or maybe someone you love is, has ended up with a lifelong illness for the rest of their lives, and it's not exactly how you envisioned it. Here's what I do know is that if we will trust in the Lord with all of our heart, only not on our own understanding, there's a chance with some of the hardest things in life, you'll never understand the why or the how or the when. But if we will continue in all of our ways to acknowledge him, God, okay, what's the right thing to do right now? Even if my experience doesn't match my expectation, in all our ways, acknowledge him and he will make our path straight. So maybe that relationship isn't measuring up. Maybe your marriage, maybe your relationship with your coworker, maybe your relationship with your child or your parent is not what you would anticipate it to be. What can you do? Can you still keep living and striving to pursue the love that's found in 1 Corinthians 13? Can your love be patient? Can your love be kind? Can your love not be self-seeking? Can your love endure? Can your love persevere? Can your love, um, you know, never fail? Can your love keep no record of wrongs? What, what, What can you do in this moment through the power of God's spirit to continue to do the right thing in the right way, trusting in the sovereignty and the providence of God? Think about the providence of God. Uh, I think about these words in Romans chapter eight. Maybe they're familiar to you. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. That in all things, God works. In all things, God works. Um, there's a reason why the phrase is popular that hindsight is twenty twenty. Because often looking back, we can see how things made sense that we could not see in the moment. Just a couple minor examples for you. My senior year of high school, I may have told you this before, 
We had the senior superlatives. And our student council voted me the most likely to become a preacher. I had been uh, one of the leaders in our Christian organization, and they came to me and said, hey, Craig, we'd like to make you most, vote you most likely to become a preacher. We'll put your picture in the yearbook. We'll put that underneath your, your picture. Uh, what do you think about that? And I said, no way. I'm never, ever, ever going to be a preacher. I don't want to be a preacher. I'll never be a preacher. Don't do that to me. And so they went and found somebody else. I went off to Bible college, uh, Johnson Bible College, to be a teacher I wanted to teach middle school or high school and coach sports. I'm there a year, and the director of the program comes to me and says, Craig, I've never done this before, but as a freshman, it's really rare to get an A in the elementary education class that you were in, and you did, but I'm not going to let you stay on the program. And I said, why? She said, well, because in your time tutoring this kid to read, you told him more about Jesus than you did teach him how to read, and so you probably are better suited for ministry. And I said, no way, I'm never going to be a minister. I don't want to be a minister. My, my father invited me to be a part-time youth minister that summer after my freshman year at our church in Georgia, and so I went and I did it because I thought it would be easy money, $200 a week, I could buy a PlayStation, I could buy a TV, and I just hung out with kids and partied all the time, which, by the way, youth ministry is so much more than that. I went back to Johnson and I felt the Lord saying, Craig, maybe I want you to be a minister. And so I got on the youth ministry preaching program. I said I'd never be a preacher. And so I, I had this vision that I would be a lifelong youth minister. I would, I would be hanging out with kids in my 60s. Until two years into being a youth minister, the senior minister of our church got asked to resign and the elders came to me. And one week our church dropped by more than half in attendance. Our giving dropped by more than half. And they said, Craig, we can't afford a youth minister and a preacher anymore, so will you be a youth minister and our preacher? And Audrey and I are like, well, I don't know. I guess, I'll figure out how to preach. And so for two years I preached every Sunday in addition to being a youth minister. And keep in mind, I was never going to be a preacher. I went back into youth ministry for six years and then God ignites this excitement in me to do what I'm doing now. And 12 years later, I'm preaching. I say all that to say, we see the providence of God at play in this. Because here's someone who wanted to be a teacher and ended up at a Bible college. Where else could I be trained to preach? And even when I didn't want to become a preacher in youth ministry, it worked out that through difficult circumstances, I was left preaching every Sunday for two years. And God uses those seasons, even when the experience doesn't match my expectation, to grow me. And my response was just to keep following him and honoring him. I trust in him with all my heart, and he makes my path straight. Just another small example. Um, I've had conversations with some of you and some of your loved ones, and you know who you are, if that's the case, about how to overcome struggles with pornography. One of the darkest seasons in my life came when I was at Johnson Bible College and nearly got kicked out of school for looking at pornography on the internet in the computer lab. Who would have thought that that dark experience could be used by God to help people now 22 years later? But that's how God works. You trust in him with all your heart and you lean not on your own understandings, but in all your ways you acknowledge him. Even when you don't acknowledge him, you get back to acknowledging him and he makes your path straight. And then we see that God is this God who works all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So again, I ask you, what are you waiting through? What are you waiting on? 
Where is it that your God-honoring expectations don't match your experience? Will you trust in him and simply follow him? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for showing us through David's life what it looks like to trust you and follow you. Even when things aren't going well, even when things don't seem to be working out, to know that you are still working. God, give us a faith and shape our hearts to where we long to honor you and to do things your way, even when what we're experiencing is far from what you would desire. Help us to trust in you with all of our hearts. In your name we pray, amen.